Jesus Christ. He is our Redeemer. He is our Rescuer. And when He rescues us, He rescues us thoroughly, completely. But it's not without its price. Jesus Christ rescues at an enormous cost. The price for Him rescuing you. The price for Him rescuing us is that it cost Him Himself. It cost His life. It cost the Father such a price to rescue us, to redeem us, to give you forgiveness. It was the price of giving his only unique beloved son. That is an enormous price. And while I don't know that we ought to turn that into a way of esteeming ourselves. I've heard it used that way. See how worthy you must be if God is willing that his only begotten son should die for you as some sort of a self-esteem booster or low self-esteem blaster. I don't think... I don't think that's the way we should appreciate it. The way we should appreciate it is to say, I am by no means worth the price that you paid. But you have paid for me nonetheless. And I am yours. You have paid for me. And it was a dreadful over high price but you are now my my owner and my master you gave the life of your own son to rescue me and now I give myself to you yes you have purchased me but I'll not fight you on it and we come to find that he is a good master that he is a good owner. Then we find, by way of the relationship offered, that he is a good master, yes, a good king. He rules well. He rules favorably. He gives grace and he gives kindness even to the lowliest among us. And not just merely one among the kindnesses that he offers, but the kindness that he offers, the rescue that he offers, the redemption that he offers, is not merely to be our king, which is fantastic enough on its own, but the redemption includes and is that we are actually purchased to be 
adopted, adopted into his family. He makes us family members. He calls us in. He draws us near. And having more than forgiven us, and having more than allowed for us to be in his service, which is a, a marvelous thing, if you think about it, to be in the service of the king of the universe? How amazing that even I and people like me, that includes you, that we should be in the service of the king? Just incredible. But above all of that, and in fact the very point of the covenant, is that it is to be adopted into the family as his child, more than forgiven, more than just in his service. Yes, we are forgiven, and yes, we are in his service, but we do so as his beloved children we get brought in. What is the price that God was willing to pay for a family? The price that God was willing to pay was the price of Jesus Christ's life for us. In some sense, a substitution. In some sense, a payment. In some sense, the most marvelous rescue mission ever. And in every sense, grace, mercy, marvelous grace, love upon love, what God has done to redeem. He has, as our head, shown himself to be worthy of headship, worthy of headship. It's not just a position that he has, it's something that he has demonstrated, honorably demonstrated. He deserves, he is worthy, he is a good king, he is a good master. He has come for us, and he has way overpaid for us, and he has shown himself to be so kind, so merciful. God loves us and he has given his son to rescue us. You ought to take him as your Lord and as your master. If you have not done so, now is the time. Now is the time. Consider this, God sometimes tests. It's true, so God sometimes puts his people to the test. That is where we were in Genesis chapter 24. God was testing Abraham, in a manner of speaking. Sometimes God tests us. And if God's test is this, Simply this, you, you have had enough time to follow your own way. I have given my son as the ransom price 
Do you think that's enough? Do you agree with God that's enough? You have spent enough time following wanton pleasures, chasing after the world, the flesh, the devil, fishing in the world's pursuits, going after your own personal ambitions. Do you agree it's, it's enough? The, the cowardice or the pleasure-seeking or the laziness, the, the lack of, of love, the apathy, the whatever your sin may be. No one person is guilty of everything. But have you disregarded his son until now? And if so, is it enough? Has it gone on long enough? Here's your test. Has it gone on long enough? Do you agree? And secondly, is the price that God paid, the price of the blood of his son Jesus Christ, is that enough? This is your test. Are you going to allow God to be God? Are you going to surrender to a worthy king who is far mightier than you? But it's not as though he is making the appeal that might makes right. The appeal is this. He loves you so much that he has given to you all of it. Will you lay it all down? Will you lay it all down? Will you enter the throne room of grace in the heart of heaven and lay it all down at the feet of Jesus because he is worthy of being Lord and Master? This is a test. Is it enough for you? Could you follow such a worthy one as this. Abraham, in his old age, I think the man was 137 years old. Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord already had blessed Abraham in every way. He had already blessed him. Do you see that in verse 1? Abraham was old, he had a long life, fulfilling life. God had been faithful to his word in every way. The Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. That's at the beginning of chapter 24. Abraham has something in mind somewhere that he is going to go, something that he is going to do, something that's going to be accomplished for his son. And all of this is because God has been faithful. Do you remember, we were in chapter 22 last week. It came about after Abraham had been, the, the technical term that I have been using for this is a knucklehead. 
the the Yiddish word that I've been using for this, it's actually uh, German. Mensch. He's he's just been like any man. He has gone astray. He has been a coward. He has been. I think, uh, wrong in enough ways. I don't really need to relist all of that. That's not what the point of all of this is. But Abraham had gone so very wrong by the time chapter 22 shows up. Chapter 21 was a, a string of examples of Abraham not getting it right. And in chapter 22, now we, we see, chapter 24, that uh, Abraham has got something in mind God has been faithful. God has blessed him in every way. Here we are in chapter 22. Came about after these things. Abraham not getting it right. That God tested Abraham. God is completely capable and he is perfectly in his right to test. And he does. He says to Abraham, Abraham... And Abraham responds well by saying, I'm right here. I'm right here, Lord. Here am I. And he says to him, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And God, having sent him, Abraham obeys. Abraham obeys. He gets it right when it really counts. Way to go, Abraham. This is one of the best examples of obedience through the length and breadth of the scriptures. And Abraham gets it. Abraham stands to the test. Now, what do you think? Did he pass the test? We are never told outright and God said to Abraham, you passed the test with which I tested you. It doesn't, we don't have that verse. What we have is Abraham getting up early in the morning the next day, saddling his donkey, taking men with him, taking Isaac, his son, with him, who I think must have been 37. That's, that's what I'm going to suggest but uh, I'm willing to be corrected on that. Uh, I'll tell you why I think that here in just a minute. And he goes. He just goes. And he goes for three days. Think of that. So on the third day, verse 4 says, On the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. That's soon. It took three days. God says, I want you to take your son and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to make him a burnt offering to me. Abraham gets up right away. The next day, he starts on his journey and he goes. And on the third day, think about that. On the third day, now I'm, I'm familiar with the echoes and the resonances of the third day. But on the third day, it took three days. Abraham raises his eyes. He sees the place from a distance. That means it was soon. It took three days uh, journey, but it was not immediate. It was not like, Abraham, I want you to slay your son. And Abraham poisoned him and he fell over dead right there. 
that's not the case. That's not what it shows us. Three days Abraham had to stew over what it was that he was going to do. He had to stew over his determination. He had to make that decision, and then he had to remake that decision, and remake that decision, and remake that decision for three days. At any point, he could have turned tail and run. He could have turned and he could have gone. So while his son was going to be sacrificed, Abraham has to be... Now, I know that I'm supplying. We don't have this verse. I don't see this verse, but this is his son. Your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And for the next three days, think about why you're going in the direction you're going. Why you're going where you're going. Why you're going to... Uh, get on top of this mountain. What you're going to do there. You're going to kill your son. You're going to offer him up as a burnt offering to God. Abraham is undergoing a different kind of thing. Isaac, however much he may have been in on it, it's not going to be the same. And I see willingness in Isaac. I see surrender in Isaac. But for Abraham... This is death by inches. It's not, as I said, just take some poison, fall over dead, matter of minutes or something like that. Gun blast, bang, it's over. Darkness, bright light, there it is, done. Abraham is dying by inches. He is having to watch this happen. And again, at any moment... He could turn around. He could turn tail. He could duck and run. Now, you can't run from the living God. But sometimes we fool ourselves. And he could have thought. He could have done such a thing. We don't have that verse. And I'm just simply ruminating over this, cogitating, thinking through it. But it took three days. That we have. That scripture. Fourth, uh, fourth verse of chapter 22. On the third day... Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from distance. And he says to his servants, their servants, remember, he says to the young men, his servants essentially don't do anything. You guys, you guys are the servants. Don't do anything. You stay here. I'm going to go and I'm going to take care of this. Right? You guys are the... What was the point of taking the young men? Abraham rose early, took two of his young men with him. Right? He split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went. Abraham says to the young men, you stay here. Uh, and it was Isaac that carried the wood. What were the servants there for? What were the young men doing there? Meanwhile, it was all taken care of by Abraham and Isaac. To extend that, as you know, the real story is, it was all taken care of by God. This is a story about headship. This is a story about the one at the top of the heap is the one who is actually taking care of it all. He's the one that's going to pay the ultimate price. He's the one who is going to provide. He's the one who is going to be giving. He is the one who... And as you follow this headship up the chain, the servants that came, the young men, 
They don't do anything. Their job is don't do anything. You just stay here with the donkey and I'm going to go and I'll take care of this. The boy is going to come with me, the lad, the young the young man is going to go with me and he is going to uh he's taking the wood. We're going to take care of it. And again, up the chain, Abraham, he's going to take care of it. Again, extending further by by extension by extension into the future Jesus is going to take care of it by extension further up the chain still God the Father is going to take care of it now not not patrapasianism okay that's not what I'm saying I believe in the trinity I'm not a modalist I'm not trying to say that God the Father was crucified that's not right that is a heresy called patrapasianism uh, it is Jesus it is his place to be crucified for us, not the Father's place to be crucified for us. Uh, there is a way that you can say with Scripture that on the cross, God was reconciling uh, the, the world to himself. Yes, it's Jesus who's paying the price. But by extension, going further up the chain... And I do not believe that there is any distinction. I'm versed in the Trinity. I do not think that there is any distinction between the deity of Jesus and the deity of the Father. That's not what I mean. The Father is more prominent. The Father is in a um, more elevated, more prominent position. Okay? Uh, there is only one God. There's only one God. He expresses himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself says of the Father that he is more prominent than I am. That means that ontologically there is no difference in the deity of the Father, the deity of the Son, but that there is uh, positionally, uh, there is a... Uh, subordination that Jesus expresses to the Father. And you know that the Father knew what he was going to do, knew what the end of the story was, but that God the Father had to have agonized um, over uh, the, the work of the cross, the good work of the cross. But here we see God is being known now as being the God who will provide. Jehovah Jireh, as we sometimes say in very anglicized <laughs> words. Uh, but the wonderful thing here is, is that Abraham has been put to a test. And we don't have a verse that says, um, and Abraham passed the test with flying colors. But what we do have is we have, like, for instance, um, the angel of the Lord calling out from heaven and saying, Abraham, Abraham, to which Abraham responds, here I am. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For I know, that is to say, I haven't grown in knowledge, but I, God, who does experience time, He's outside of time. He is timeless. He is both outside of time and inside of time. He experiences time. The passing of the current moment known as now. 
he, he experiences that. God is able to ride along with us on that forward leading, leaning edge of the moment we call time. Uh, he is experiencing things right along with us. Again, he is also above it and outside it. But he is experiencing it. And he says, now, that's a time marker. Now I experience. That's what the word know means. I experience that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And, well, what do you know? That's, uh, that's the Hebrew broken down into real English. Uh, it says, behold. But that word behold, th that has the value of, what do you know? Uh, then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and, well, what do you know? Behind him, there's a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up, offered him up uh, for a burnt offering in the place of his son. God's provision, God's generosity. And this is where I said this last week. I want to make sure that th this is caught, okay? We oftentimes turn this into, and for good reason, we oftentimes turn this into the story of just how wonderful and faithful Abraham was, right? I even asked myself, I said it, uh, did Abraham pass the test? And we're supposed to ask that question, but we get wrapped up in that question. Did Abraham pass the test? And we forget to ask, did God pass the test? I want you to be more impressed with God's faithfulness than with Abraham's compliance. Because God could have said, offer your son. He was perfectly in the right to do so. And he could have let Abraham kill his son. And he could have said, there, there, that was an offering. Okay, thanks. Now go about your business, Abraham. And he could have just simply allowed it to stay right there. If that's what God wanted, if that was what God desired, he could have just stayed right there just like that and never have returned Isaac, never have stopped Abraham at all. And furthermore, he could, he could have, he, feasibly, uh, I'm not saying that this is according to God's will or according to God's own wise divine counsel, but I'm saying that what God could have done is said, there, that's fine with me. And then not only not have stopped Abraham, not only not have allowed for Abraham to have the comfort of knowing that he could have raised Isaac from the dead if he did allow him to plunge the knife in. That shows up in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. He could have also kept his own son and not offered his own son. He could have said, you people need to get it figured out. And he could have left us to just order our lives ourselves and if we fail, we fail. We're all being tested at some point, I'm sure. And he could have just made allowance for that. If you fail the test, you fail the test. You're one of those. The problem is, is that every single last one of us, very likely, would have failed the test. And no matter whether we pass the test or don't pass the test, passing the test 
That is to say, in this instance, offering up your son as a sacrifice is not perfection. So there's nothing saying that God owes you anything. No one, no one could stand before God and say, there, now you owe me heaven. There, now you owe me eternity in rest and peace. There, now you are required to open the gates to me. No one can presume upon God that way. No one, no one can make a demand on God. God could have allowed us all to struggle through and even pass the test and then said, ah, good, that's the way it's supposed to be. Remember what Jesus told us in the book of Luke. So you too, when you do all that has been commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. That's the book of Luke, chapter 17, verse 10, if my memory is serving me correctly. And he could have just simply left it right there. But he has not, and he did not. He stopped Abraham. He did not allow him to kill his son. He offered up a ram as a substitution. And for all of us, he offered up a lamb, the Christ, the lion, paying the price for us, God, in his own prerogative, in his own wisdom, in his own counsel, that no one could have forced upon God. No one could demand of God that he do such a thing. God, having chosen to do so out of his love for the world, offering Jesus so that whoever would believe on Jesus as Lord and Christ wouldn't perish, but instead would have everlasting life. Not just merely this life in perpetuity, but have that covenanted life of being made to be a member of the family, a brother alongside of Christ our King. Joint heirs with Jesus. Filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. We are your children. We are your family. And we call out to you as your children. All of that God gave. And more. Strangely, more. Abraham where he was, where he found himself impressed by the faithfulness of God, Abraham said, the, the Lord will provide, and that's the name of that place. The mountain that's called the Lord, it will be provided. That mountain. So be impressed by God's faithfulness. It is good for Abraham to have been obedient do you know what the opposite of obedience is? The opposite of obedience is disobedience. Well, yes, that's true. Uh, it, it is. Uh, you can't say otherwise, right? But 
the way that opposites work, people think that, you know, there's, um, there are opposites. What's the opposite of black? Well, the opposite of black is white. Um, okay, okay, I get your point. But opposites actually work in uh, triangles. Opposites actually work in triangles. Uh, the opposite of black would be transparent. Take that. <laughs> okay. So, um, opposites will place themselves something in the middle and then something on either side. Um, so, it's sort of like what is the opposite of the middle? The opposite of the middle is the end. Uh, but there's no such thing as a one-ended stick. So, which end? Well, as it turns out, both ends. What's the opposite of hate? Well, the opposite of hate is love, right? Well, yes, in one sense, the opposite of hate is love. But in another sense, hate and love are both real uh, dynamic emotions. What is the opposite of hate? Apathy. Apathy. Where you just don't care. Hate cares deeply. Just sort of in a negative way. Apathy is the opposite of hate. I, I don't I don't care. Whatever. I have no investment. I have I just whatever. I don't I don't care. Whatever. I don't care if something good happens, I don't care if something bad happens. I don't care. You don't matter. There's nothing there. Right? So the opposite of hate is love. Yes. The opposite of hate is apathy. What is the opposite of obedience? The opposite of obedience is yes, disobedience. That's true. But what's the opposite of obedience? Regret. The opposite of obedience is regret. And Abraham here, did he pass the test? Well, what we have given to us is the verses 15 and following. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned with his young men, and they arose, and they went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So Abraham, not only was he faithful, right, compliant, that is to say, uh, but he was, in his obedience, he was impervious to regret. Impervious to regret. Because he obeyed. What is the opposite of obedience? Regret. If you do not obey, you'll have to look back on it and regret it. 
if you are obedient, there will be no need ever for regret. You'll be impervious to it. You'll be able to rise above regret and say, I have done what is right. I have given my all. I have done what has been asked of me. And while it may not merit salvation, the God who has given me the gift of salvation freely by his choice through Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he has paid, I have loved him. I haven't earned salvation. That's not what it's about. But you can say, through my obedience, I have demonstrated I love the Lord. I did not pay lip service. I lived my love to the Lord. And I don't regret any of it. For eternity, you can say, I have loved the Lord. And that's not a proud thing, no. The judgment is going to be this. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The divine accolade. The thing that pleases the servant is to know that he has pleased his master. Abraham, for all the times that he was a knucklehead, for all the times that he was a mensch, for all the times that he was a Schlamazel, that's Yiddish. He got this one right. We don't have a verse saying, after uh, where it says, uh, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. We don't have the verse that said, and Abraham passed the test. We don't have that verse. But if you can read, then you know Abraham passed the test. Because of God's treatment of Abraham, because of God's response to Abraham. And this divine oath is important. If ever there was something important, here it is. He says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Headship. Did you see it? He was willing to sacrifice his son... What does Abraham get out of the deal? What does Abraham get out of the deal? Or, seriously, think about that. What does Abraham get out of the deal? And here's the answer. Do you remember when he was saying, Lord, what will you give me? Lord, what will you give me? Right? Do you guys remember that conversation? He is worried, if that's the right word for it. Uh, chapter 15, Abraham is uh, approached by God. He says, don't fear, Abraham. I'm a shield to you. 
your reward shall be very great. Abraham said, O Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, what will you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham said, Since you have given me no offspring, then one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's where Abraham went right to begin with. And then Abraham did not go right for a little while. <laughs> but then he went right again What when, when he offered his son Isaac. And now he has no regrets because he was obedient to the Lord. And above that, he actually ended up protecting his son. And beyond that, he actually secured a place for a progeny, a series of children, a series of the, the line of his seed, his descendants. He actually secures that in his obedience. Now, doesn't that seem counterintuitive? Wait a minute, you're asking me to offer my son in obeying whatever it is that Abraham thought that he had to be afraid of, whatever it was Abraham thought to be scared of, that I'm giving away my son, that I love. I'm sacrificing my son. I'm giving away this one child who is my son, my progeny, who will be the inheritor. And when he was willing to offer that up to God, fears and all, and I'm putting some thoughts into Abraham here. I'm putting some thoughts there. I, I freely admit that. But here's what we do have. Is that whether he had fears or whether he didn't have fears. What we have is he was obedient. And because he was obedient. What God says is by myself I have sworn declares the Lord. Because you have done this thing. And have not withheld your son. Your only son. Indeed. I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed. Just as I had said before in chapter 15, as the stars of the heavens and as the sand, which is on the sea, uh, seashore. And your seed, they're going to possess the gates of their enemies. Do you remember in uh, the book of Genesis, which is where we are, at the beginning, do you remember... Man was created to rule over the birds, the fish, the beasts of the field, the creeping things. He was told to take his place as ruler in dominion over all of this. And what we have here is an escalation now of these people. Verse 18, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That is the outworking. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. How is that headship going to be worked out? 
how's that headship going to actually be exercised? According to verse 17, he says that uh, your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. So there's going to be ruling. There's going to be ruling. And now they're in the place where these people, the Abrahamites, the Isaacites, as we come to know them, the, the Israelites, the Jacobites, the, the sons of Israel, they are going to be put in the place where they are going to, by God's blessing and provision, rule over the nations, not merely ruling over the critters and the creatures. Now, I happen to think that this is not actually pointing to Israel, the 12 tribes Israel. I think that it is very much pointing to the one seed. Paul makes a big deal out of this in the New Testament. The one seed, Jesus Christ. And there's a great way of playing on these words. Uh, the seed, the uh, descendants, but it's also the word family. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your family as the stars of the heavens and as the sand, right? And your family shall possess the gate of their enemies. And it's actually literally uh, your one seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, that's literally what it actually says. And so I think it is pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. In your one seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God is giving to Abraham the place of headship. Abraham, your way will be remarked upon for the ages. Abraham, the way that this covenant between God and Abraham has been working is it was initiated by faith. He believed God and it was accredited to him as being in the right with God. And the way that the blessings of the covenant were escalated is the very same thing. He simply believed God and obeyed. He believed with the kind of belief that was not just a heady, intellectual believing, but rather was the kind of faith that can be stepped out in living action. So, what did Abe get out of the deal? His family. He protected his family. He left a legacy for his family. He actually secured his family, his family's place. He did well by his progeny. He did well for his progeny. And if we scoot forward, uh, we see in chapter 23, verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years, these were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kerith Arba, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. 
Then Abraham rose from before his dead, and he went to speak to the locals. So first off, Sarah lived 127 years, and that means Isaac is 37 years old at this point. That means Abraham is 137 at this point. And I heard a Jewish rabbi, um, his exposition was to say that when Sarah heard what it was that Abraham had done with her son, that she essentially had a heart attack and died. Now, I cannot guarantee you that that is 100% precisely, exactly, completely, totally, a straightforward, best reading. Uh, But I think it works, and I have adopted it, and so I'm not going to be insistent that Isaac was 37 years old when he carried the bundle of wood and went up uh, on Mount Moriah. I'm not going to be insistent that Abraham was 137 uh, as they went up on the mountain when he went to offer his 37-year-old son. But it works. It seems to work. Uh, and it's uh, we can say that he was certainly not older than that. <clears throat> we don't have uh, anything suggesting that this would not have been older. We do have it saying, now... Sarah lived 127 years, and that could be as simple as, you know, next chapter, next thing on the list, here's the next bit of the story, but uh, she died. And then we have the story of how Abraham went and he purchased for himself uh, for 400 shekels of silver a burial plot. The story of the Jews and their place in Israel ultimately begins with Abraham purchasing a tiny little plot of land in a tiny little land. He buys a cave where he can bury his dead. That's how Israel actually gets started. And from buying this tiny little spot, Abraham, buying a tiny little spot, some place to put someone that he loved, that is, died. That's how the story of the land of Israel really gets started. And it is also the way that the story of Israel actually ends. There is a tiny little spot, a cave, And there, the Messiah of the Jews is laid to rest in a tomb. And that tomb marks the end of known Israel, the land. The people rejected their Messiah and they killed him. And they essentially pulled the pin and the timer is now ticking. Not now. But then, when Jesus was laid in the tomb, and they had 40 years. They had until 70 A.D. And then the end of Israel as we know it came in 70 A.D. Now, I'm not a full preterist, but I need for you guys to realize uh, that that is not my teaching. That's Jesus' teaching. So a cave, a tomb, there was some lingering before right? And there were some lingerings after, right? I mean, Isaac's 37. He's almost 40. 
So there were some lingerings before and there were some lingerings after. But the beginning of the land and the end of the land both take place in a cave where they laid their dead. Jesus paid the price. And when he paid that price, what did God get out of the deal? He secured his family. What did God get out of the deal? He gave up, that's the wrong way of wording it, but go with me. He gave up this little area of land so that he could then become the ruler, rightfully placed, having earned it properly, the ruler of the entire universe. No square inch of the universe is now not properly possessed and ruled by the Lord. But there's more. Jesus will return and he will set up and he's going to rule and reign in the fullest of ways. But it has to be recognized, it has to be understood. Jesus, the Christ, he rules, he reigns, he is master. He laid down his life. He made that sacrifice. He is the king. God has shown you, not just in words, but he has demonstrated that he loves you. He sent his son for you so that you would not have to perish, but so that you could believe and have eternal life. Call on Jesus Christ. Call on him as Lord Receive him as master. He is now possessor of both heaven and earth. And he is going to return and your obedience will not be regretted. The Lord knows how to reward. He knows how to give. These words of blessing are the last words from God to Abraham. Let it be that God's words to you are, you have obeyed my voice. And let him bless you. You can do nothing to be saved, but simply believe that Jesus has already accomplished it all. Trust Jesus. Obey Jesus. This is well-placed faith.